having considered the attributes of God as laid down in Scripture, and so far cleared our way to the doctrine of predestination, I shall, before I enter further on the subject, explain the principal terms generally made use of when treating of it, and settle their true meaning. In discoursing on the divine decrees, mention is frequently made of God's love and hatred, of election and reprobation, and of divine purpose, foreknowledge, and predestination, each of which we shall distinctly and briefly consider. 1. When love is predicated of God, we do not mean that he is possessed of it as a passion or affection. In us it is such, but if considered in that sense it should be ascribed to the deity, it would be utterly subversive of the simplicity, perfection, and independency of his being. Love, therefore, when attributed to him, signifies, one, his eternal benevolence, that is, his everlasting will, purpose, and determination to deliver, bless, and save his people. Of this, no good works wrought by them are in any sense of the cause. Neither are even the merits of Christ himself to be considered as any way moving or exciting this good will of God to his elect, since the gift of Christ to be their mediator and redeemer is itself an effect of the free and eternal favor born to them by God the Father. John 3.16 His love towards them arises merely from the good pleasure of his own will without the least regard to anything ad extra or out of himself. 2. The term implies complacency, delight, and approbation. With this love, God cannot love even his elect as considered in themselves, because in that view they are guilty, polluted sinners, but they were from all eternity objects of it, and they stood united to Christ and partakers of his righteousness. 3. Love implies actual beneficence, which, properly speaking, is nothing else than the effect of accomplishment of the other two, those who are the cause of this. This actual beneficence respects all blessings, whether of a temporal, spiritual, or eternal nature. Temporal good things are indeed indiscriminately bestowed in a greater or less degree on all, whether elect or reprobate, but they are given in a covenant way and as blessings to the elect only, to whom also the other benefits respecting grace and glory are peculiar. And this love of beneficence, no less than that of benevolence and complacency, is absolutely free and irrespective of any worthiness in man. 2. When hatred is ascribed to God, it implies 1. A negation of benevolence or a resolution not to have mercy on such and such men nor to endue them with any of those graces which stand connected with eternal life. So Esau have I hated, Romans 9. That is, I did from all eternity determine within myself not to have mercy on him, the sole cause of which awful negation is not merely the unworthiness of the persons hated, but the sovereignty and freedom of the divine will. 2. It denotes displeasure and dislike 
for sinners who are not interested in Christ cannot but be infinitely displeasing to and loathsome in the sight of eternal purity. 3. It signifies a positive will to punish and destroy the reprobate for their sins, of which will the infliction of misery upon them hereafter is but the necessary effect and actual execution. 3. The term election that so very frequently occurs in Scripture is there taken in a fourfold sense and most commonly signifies one that eternal, sovereign, unconditional, particular, immutable act of God where he selected some from among all mankind and of every nation under heaven to be redeemed and everlastingly saved by Christ. 2. It sometimes and more rarely signifies that gracious and almighty act of the divine spirit whereby God actually and visibly separates his elect from the world by effectual calling. This is nothing but the manifestation and partial fulfillment of the former election, and by it the objects of predestinating grace are sensibly led into the communion of saints, invisibly added to the number of God's declared professing people. Of this our Lord makes mention, Because I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. John 15.19 Where it should seem the choice spoken of does not refer so much to God's eternal, imminent act of election as his open manifest one, whereby he powerfully and efficaciously called the disciples forth from the world of the unconverted and quickened them from above in conversion. 3. By election is sometimes meant God's taking a whole nation, community, or body of men into external covenant with himself by giving them the advantage of revelation or his written word as the rule of their belief and practice when other nations are without it. In this sense, the whole body of the Jewish nation was indiscriminately called elect because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Deuteronomy 7.6 Now all that are thus elected are not therefore necessarily saved, but many of them may be and are reprobates as those of whom our Lord says in Matthew 13.20 that they hear the word and anon with joy receive it, etc., and the Apostle says, They went out from us, that is, being favored with the same gospel revelation we were. They professed themselves true believers, no less than we. But they were not of us, that is, they were not with us, chosen of God unto everlasting life. Nor did they ever in reality possess that faith of his operation, which he gave to us. For if they had in this sense been of us, they would, no doubt, have continued with us. 1 John 2.19 They would have manifested the sincerity of their professions and the truth of their conversion by enduring to the end and being saved. And even this external revelation, though it is not necessarily connected with eternal happiness, is nevertheless productive of very many and great advantages to the people and places where it is vouchsafed and is made known to some nations and kept back from others according to the good pleasure of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will. 
4. And lastly, election sometimes signifies the temporary designation of some people or persons to the filling up some particular station in the visible church or office in civil life. So Judas was chosen to the apostleship, John 6.70, and Saul to be the king of Israel, 1 Samuel 10.24. Thus much for the use of the word election. 4. On the contrary, reprobation denotes either 1. God's eternal preterition of some men when he chose others to glory and his predestination of them to fill up the measure of their iniquities and then to receive the just punishment of their crimes, even destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This is the primary, most obvious and most frequent sense in which the word is used. It may likewise signify, too, God's forbearing to call by his grace those whom he hath thus ordained to condemnation, but this is only a temporary preterition in the consequence of that which was from eternity. 3. And lastly, the word may be taken in other sense, as denoting God's refusal to grant to some nations the light of the gospel, Revelation. This may be considered as a kind of national reprobation, which does not imply that every individual person who lives in such a country must therefore unavoidably perish forever, any more than that every individual who lives in a land called Christian is therefore in a state of salvation. There are no doubt elect persons among the former as well as reprobate ones among the latter. By a very little attention to the context, any reader may easily discover in which of these several senses the words elect and reprobate are used whenever they occur in Scripture. 5. Mention is frequently made in Scripture of the purpose of God. Footnote. The purpose of God does not mean to differ at all from predestination, that being as well as this an eternal free and unchangeable act of his will. Besides the word purpose, when predicated of God in the New Testament, always denotes his design of saving his elect in that only. Romans 8.28, Romans 9.11, Ephesians 1.11, Ephesians 3.11, and 2 Timothy 1.9. As does the term predestination, which throughout the whole New Testament never signifies the appointment of the non-elect to wrath, but singly and solely the foreappointment of the elect to grace and glory. Though in common theological writings, predestination is spoken of as extending to whatever God does, both in a way of permission and efficacy, as in the utmost sense of the term it does. It is worthy of the reader's notice that the original word, which we render purpose, signifies not only an appointment, but a foreappointment, and such a foreappointment as is efficacious and cannot be obstructed, but shall most assuredly issue in a full accomplishment. And the footnote, which is no other than his gracious intention from eternity of making his elect everlastingly happy in Christ. Six. 
When foreknowledge is ascribed to God, the word imports, one, that general prescience whereby he knew from all eternity both what he himself would do and what his creatures in consequence of his efficacious and permissive decree should do likewise. The divine foreknowledge considered in this view is absolutely universal. It extends to all beings that did, do, or ever shall exist and to all actions that ever have been, that are, and shall be done, whether good or evil, natural, civil, or moral. 2. The word often denotes that special prescience which has for its objects his own elect, and them alone, whom he is in a peculiar sense said to know and foreknow. Psalm 1, verse 6, John 10, 27, 2 Timothy 2:19. Romans 8.29, 1 Peter 1.2 And this knowledge is connected with, or rather, the same with love, favor, and approbation. 7. We come now to consider the meaning of the word predestination, and how it is taken in Scripture. The verb predestinate is the Latin original, and signifies in that tongue to deliberate forehand, with oneself how one shall act and in consequence of such deliberation to constitute foreordain and predestinate where when how and by whom anything shall be done and to what end it shall be done so the Greek verb which exactly answers to the English word predestinate and is rendered by it signifies to resolve beforehand within oneself what to do and before the thing resolved on is actually effected to appoint it to some certain use and direct it to some determinate end the Hebrew verb Hebdel is likewise much the same signification now none but wise men are capable especially in matters of great importance of rightly determining what to do and how to accomplish a proper end by just suitable and effectual means and if this is confessedly a very material part of true wisdom who so fit to dispose of men and assign each individual his sphere of action in this world and his place in the world to come as the all-wise God and yet alas how many are there who cavil at those eternal decrees which we are capable of fully and clearly understanding them would appear to be as just as they are sovereign and as wise as they are incomprehensible. Divine preordination has for its objects all things that are created. No creature, whether rational or irrational, inanimate or inanimate, is exempted from its influence. All beings, whatever, from the highest angel to the meanest reptile and from the meanest reptile to the minutest atom are the objects of God's eternal decrees in particular providence. However, the ancient fathers only make use of the word predestination as it refers to angels or men, whether good or evil, and it is used by the Apostle Paul in a more limited sense still, so as by it to mean only that branch of it which respects God's election and designation of his people to eternal life.
Romans 8.30, Ephesians 1.11. But that we may more justly apprehend the import of this word and the ideas intended to be conveyed by it, it may be proper to observe that the term predestination, theologically taken, admits to a fourfold definition and may be considered as 1. That internal, most wise and immutable decree of God, whereby he did from before all time determine and ordain to create, dispose of, and direct to some particular end every person and thing to which he has given or is yet to give being and to make the whole creation subservient to and declarative of his own glory. Of this decree, actual providence is the execution. 2. Predestination may be considered as relating generally to mankind and them only, and in this view we define it to be the everlasting, sovereign, and invariable purpose of God, whereby he did determine within himself to create Adam in his own image and likeness, and then to permit his fall and to suffer him thereby to plunge himself in his whole posterity inasmuch as they all sinned in him, not only virtually, but also federally and representatively, into the dreadful abyss of sin, misery, and death. 3. Consider predestination as relating to the elect only, and it is that eternal, unconditional, particular, and irreversible act of the divine will, whereby in matchless love and adorable sovereignty God determined with himself to deliver a certain number of Adam's degenerate offspring. Footnote. When we say that the decree of predestination to life and death respects man as fallen, we do not mean that the fall was actually antecedent to that decree, for the decree is truly and properly eternal, as all God's imminent acts undoubtedly are, whereas the fall took place in time. What we intend, then, is only this, that God, for reasons without doubt worthy of himself, and of which we are by no means in this life competent judges, having from everlasting preemptory ordained to suffer the fall of Adam, did likewise from everlasting consider the human race as fallen, and out of the whole mass of mankind, thus viewed and foreknown as impure and obnoxious to condemnation, vouchsafed to select some particular persons who collectively make up a very great, though precisely determinate number, in and on whom he would make known the ineffable riches of his mercy. End of footnote. So Adam's degenerate offspring out of that sinful and miserable estate into which by his primitive transgression they were to fall and in which sad condition they were equally involved with those who were not chosen but being pitched upon and singled out by God the Father to be vessels of grace and salvation not for anything in them that could recommend them to his favor or entitle them to his notice but merely because he would show himself gracious to them 
they were in time actually redeemed by Christ, are effectually called by His Spirit, justified, adopted, sanctified, and preserved safe to His heavenly kingdom. The supreme end of this decree is the manifestation of His own infinitely glorious and amiably tremendous perfections. The inferior or subordinate end is the happiness and salvation of them who are thus freely elected. 4. Predestination, as it regards the reprobate, is that eternal, most holy, sovereign, and immutable act of God's will, whereby he hath determined to leave some men to perish in their sins, and to be justly punished for them. Chapter 2, page 85 wherein the doctrine of predestination is explained as it relates in general to all men. Thus much being premised with relation to the scripture, terms commonly made use of in this controversy, we shall now proceed to take a nearer view of this high and mysterious article. And 1. We, with the scriptures, assert that there is a predestination of some particular persons to life for the praise of the glory of divine grace and a predestination of others particular persons to death which death of punishment they shall inevitably undergo and that justly on account of their sins 1. There is a predestination of some particular persons to life so many are called but few are chosen Matthew 20 verse 15 that is the gospel revelation comes indiscriminately to great multitudes, but few, comparatively speaking, are spiritually and eternally the better for it. And these few to whom it is the Savior of life unto life are therefore savingly benefited by it, because they are chosen or elect of God. To the same effect are the following passages among many others. For the elect's sake those days shall be shortened, Matthew 24:22 As many as were ordained to eternal life believed Acts 13:48 Whom he did predestinate them he also called Romans 8:30 and verse 33 Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself according to the good pleasure of his will Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5 who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ before the world began 2 Timothy 1 9 2. This election of certain individuals unto eternal life was for the praise of the glory of divine grace this is expressly asserted in so many words by the Apostle Ephesians 1 verses 5 and 6 Grace or mere favor was the impulsive cause of all it was the mainspring which set all the inferior wills in motion it was an act of grace in God to choose any when he might have passed by all it was an act of sovereign grace to choose this man rather than that when both were equally undone in themselves and alike obnoxious to his displeasure. In a word, since election was not of works and does not proceed on the least regard had to any worthiness in its objects, 
it must be of free, unbiased grace. But election is not of works. Romans 11, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, it is solely of grace. 3. There is, on the other hand, a predestination of some particular persons to death. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. 2 Corinthians 4.3 Who stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. 1 Peter 2.8 These are natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed. 2 Peter 2.12 There are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Jude 4 Whose names were not written in the book of life, from the foundation of the world. Revelation 17.8 But of this we shall treat professedly and more at large in the fifth chapter. 4. This future death they shall inevitably undergo. For as God will certainly save all whom he wills should be saved, so he will as surely condemn all whom he wills shall be condemned. For he is the judge of all the whole earth whose decree shall stand, and from whose sentence there is no appeal. Hath he said, and shall he not make it good? Hath he spoken, and shall it not come to pass? And his decree is this, that these, that is the non-elect, who are left under the guilt of final impenitence, unbelief, and sin, shall go away into everlasting punishment, and the righteous, that is those who, in consequence, of their election in Christ in union to him are justly reputed and really constituted such shall enter into life eternal Matthew 25:46 5 the reprobate shall undergo this punishment justly and on account of their sins sin is the meritorious and immediate cause of any man's damnation God condemns and punishes the non-elect not merely as men, but as sinners, and had it pleased the great governor of the universe to have entirely prevented sin from having any entrance into the world, it would seem as if he could not, consistently with his known attributes, have condemned any man at all. But, as all sin is properly meritorious of eternal death, and all men are sinners, they who are condemned are condemned most justly and those who are saved are saved in the way of sovereign mercy through the vicarious obedience and death of Christ for them. Now this twofold predestination of some to life and others to death if it may be called twofold both being constituent parts of the same degree cannot be denied without likewise denying one most express and frequent declarations of Scripture, and two, the very existence of God. For, since God is a being perfectly simple, free from all accident and composition, and yet a will to save some and punish others, is very often predicated of Him in Scripture, and an immovable decree to do this, in consequence of His will, is likewise ascribed to Him in a perfect foreknowledge of the sure and certain accomplishment of what he has thus willed and decreed is also attributed to him. It follows that whoever denies this will 
decree and foreknowledge of God does implicitly and virtually deny God himself since his will, decree and foreknowledge are no other than God himself willing and decreeing and foreknowing. 2. We assert that God did from eternity decree to make man in his own image and also decreed to suffer him to fall from that image in which he should be created and thereby forfeit the happiness with which he was invested. Which decree and the consequences of it were not limited to Adam only but included and extended to all his natural posterity. Something of this was hinted already in the preceding chapter and we shall now proceed to the proof of it. 1. That God did make man in his own image is evident from scripture. Genesis 1.27 2. That he decreed from eternity so to make man is an evident sense for God to do anything without having decreed it or fixed a previous plan in his own mind would be a manifest imputation on his own wisdom. And if he decreed that now or at any time which he did not always decree, he would not be unchangeable. 3. That man actually did fall from the divine image and his original happiness is the undoubted voice of Scripture. Genesis 3. And 4. That he fell in consequence of the divine decree we prove thus. God was either willing that Adam should fall or unwilling and indifferent about it. If God was unwilling that Adam should turn grass, how came it to pass that he did? Is man stronger and is Satan wiser than he that made them? Surely no. Again, could not God, had it so pleased him, have hindered the tempter's access to paradise? Or have created man, as he did the elect angels, with a will invariably determined to good only, and incapable of being biased to evil? Or at least have made the grace and strength which he had endued Adam actually effectual to the resisting of all solicitations to sin? None but atheists would answer these questions in the negative. Surely if God had not willed the fall, he could, and no doubt would, have prevented it. But he did not prevent it. Ergo, he willed it. And if he willed it, he certainly decreed it. From the decree of God is nothing else but the seal and ratification of his will. He does nothing but what he decreed, and he decreed nothing which he did not will. And both will and decree are absolutely eternal. Though the execution of both be in time. The only way to evade the force of this reasoning is to say that God was indifferent and unconcerned whether man stood or fell. But in what a shameful, unworthy light does this represent the deity? Is it possible for us to imagine that God could be an idle, careless spectator of one of the most important events that ever came to pass? Are not the very hairs of our head all numbered? Or does a sparrow fall to the ground without our heavenly Father? If then things the most trivial and worthless are subject to the appointment of his decree and the control of his providence, 
how much more is man, the masterpiece of this lower creation, and above all that man, Adam, who when recent from his master's hands was the living image of God himself, and very little inferior to angels. And on whose perseverance was suspended the welfare, not of himself only, but likewise that of the whole world. But so far was God from being indifferent in this matter, that there is nothing whatever about which he is so. For he worketh all things without exception, after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1.11 Consequently, if he positively wills whatever is done, he cannot be indifferent with regard to anything. On the whole, if God was not unwilling that Adam should fall, he must have been willing that he should, since between God's willing and nilling there is no medium. And is it not highly rational as well as scriptural? Nay, is it not absolutely necessary to suppose that the fall was not contrary to the will and determination of God? Since if it was his will, which the apostle represents as being irresistible, Romans 9:19 was apparently frustrated and his determination rendered of worse than none effect. And how dishonorable, too, how inconsistent with and how notoriously subversive of the dignity of God such a blasphemous supposition would be. And how irreconcilable with every one of his allotted attributes is very easy to observe. 5. That man by his fall forfeited the happiness with which he was invested is evident as well from the scriptures as from the experience. Genesis 3 verses 7 through 24, Romans 5:12, Galatians 3:10. He first sinned, and the essence of sin lies in disobedience to the command of God, and then immediately became miserable. Misery being, through the divine appointment, the natural and inseparable concomitant of sin. Six, that the fall and its sad consequences did not terminate solely in Adam, but affected his whole posterity, is the doctrine of the sacred oracles. Psalm 51.5, Romans 5 verses 12 through 19, 1 Corinthians 15.22, Ephesians 2.3. Besides, not only scriptural and eternal, but likewise temporal death is the wages of sin. Romans 6.23, James 1.15. And yet we see the millions of infants who never in their own persons either did or could commit sin die continually. It follows that either God must be unjust in punishing the innocent, or that these infants are some way or the other guilty creatures. If they are not so in themselves, I mean actually so by their own commission of sin, they must be so in some other person. And who that person is, let scripture say, Romans 5, 12, and 18, 1 Corinthians 15:22. And I ask, how can these be with equity sharers in Adam's punishment unless they are chargeable with his sin? And how can they be fairly chargeable with his sin unless he was their federal head and representative and acted in their name and sustained their persons when he fell? 
3, we assert that as all men universally are not elected to salvation, so neither are all men universally ordained to condemnation. This follows from what has been proved already. However, I shall subjoin some further demonstration of these two positions. 1. All men universally are not elected to salvation. And first, this may be evinced a posteriori. It is undeniable from Scripture that God will not in the last day save every individual of mankind. Daniel 12, 2, Matthew 25, 46, John 5, 29. Therefore we say, God never designed to save every individual, since if he had, every individual would and must be saved. For his counsel shall stand, and he will do all his pleasure. See what we have already advanced on this head in the first chapter, under the second article, position 8. Secondly, this may be evinced also from God's foreknowledge. The deity from all eternity, and consequently, at the very time he gives life and being to a reprobate, certainly foreknew and knows in consequence of his own decree that such a one would fall short of salvation. Now if God foreknew this, he must have predetermined it, because his own will is the foundation of his decrees, and his decrees are the foundation of his prescience. He therefore foreknowing futurities because by his predestination he hath rendered their fruition certain and inevitable, neither is it possible in the very nature of the thing that they should be elected to salvation, or even obtain it whom God foreknew should perish. For then the divine act of preterition would be changeable, wavering and precarious, the divine foreknowledge would be deceived and the divine will impeded, all which are utterly impossible. Lastly, that all men are not chosen to life nor created to that end is evident in that there are some who were hated of God before they were born. Romans 9 verses 11 through 13 are fitted for destruction. Verse 22 and made for the day of evil. Proverbs 16.1 But two, all men universally are not ordained to condemnation. There are some who are chosen. Matthew 20.16 In election or elect number who obtain grace and salvation while the rest are blinded. Romans 11.7 A little flock to whom it is the Father's good pleasure to give the kingdom. Luke 12.32 a people whom the Lord hath reserved, Jeremiah 50, verse 20, and formed for himself, Isaiah 43:21, a peculiarly favored race to whom it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, while to others it is not given, Matthew 13:11, a remnant according to the election of grace, Romans 11:5, whom God hath not appointed to wrath but to obtain salvation by Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 In a word, who are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that they should show forth the praises of him 
who has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9, and whose names for that very end are in the book of life, Philippians 4.3, and written in heaven, Luke 10.20, Hebrews 12.23. Luther observes that in Romans 9, 10, and 11, the apostle particularly insists on the doctrine of predestination, because, says he, all things whatever arise from and depend upon the divine appointment whereby it was preordained who should receive the word of life and who should disbelieve it, who should be delivered from their sins and who should be hardened in them, who should be justified and who condemned. 4. We assert that the number of the elect and also of the reprobate is so fixed and determinate that neither can be augmented or diminished. It is written of God that he telleth the number of the stars and calleth them all by their names. Psalm 147 verse 4 Now it is as incompatible with the infinite wisdom and knowledge of the all-comprehensing God to be ignorant of the names and number of the rational creatures he has made as that he should be ignorant of the stars and the other inanimate products of his almighty power. And if he knows all men in general taken in the lump, he may well be said in a more near and special sense to know them that are his by election. 2 Timothy 2.19 And if he knows who are his, he must consequently know who are not his, that is, whom and how many he hath left in the corrupt mass to be justly punished for their sins. Grant this, and who can help granting a truth so self-evident? And it follows that the number as well of the elect as of the reprobate is fixed and certain. Otherwise God would be said to know that which is not true, and his knowledge must be false and elusive, and so no knowledge at all, since that which is in itself at best but precarious can never be the fountain of sure and infallible knowledge. But that God does indeed precisely know to a man who are and are not the objects of his electing favor is evident from such scriptures as these. Thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. Exodus 33.17 Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Jeremiah 1.5 Your names are written in heaven. Luke 10.20 The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Luke 12.7 I know whom I have chosen. John 13.18 I know my sheep, and I am known of mine. John 10.14 The Lord knoweth them that are his. 2 Timothy 2.19 this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email 
at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T6L3T5 You may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the reformation's regulative principle of worship or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship commenting on the words of God which I commanded them not neither came into my heart from his commentary on Jeremiah 7:31 writes God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions since he condemns by this one phrase I have not commanded them whatever the Jews devised there is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God for when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies and attend not to his commands they pervert true religion and if this principle is adopted by the papists all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground it is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards god by performing their own superstitions there is an immense number of them as it is well known and as it manifestly appears were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship god except by obeying his word they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error the prophet's words then are very important when he says that god had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required nay what he never knew